0: Please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features private investor Chris Judd. You may know Chris Judd from his time playing AFL football. Chris is now a full-time private investor, and in this episode we discuss his transition from professional sports to private investing. We talk about modern monetary theory, economics, how to research a business, portfolio construction and lots more. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast with Chris Judd. Chris, thanks for taking the time out to join me on the podcast, mate.
1: Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to a chat.
0: Yeah, we, um, we just chatted off air. I think um, we're both of us are uniquely placed uh, because we get to talk to really good investors all the time. And I thought it'd be a good chance just to hear about you and go through your story and some of the things that are on your mind, um, you know, as a private investor now, I'm um, coming off a, a pretty extensive AFL career, but I'm not sure how familiar you are with the show. I know it's pretty similar to the format of one of your podcasts, um, but we like to go back and talk about you and kind of the early lessons learned. and. Um, whether finance or investing was part of your childhood, um, some, of the, some of the stories you might have around business, those types of things and entrepreneurship. So maybe if you could just cast your mind back uh, the early days, young Christian, if there's anything in particular that you can recall about investing or finance that played a part in your journey.
1: Uh, well, my first interaction with finance was was. As a 16-year-old, I got some money from the AIS for, for part of a football squad I was in. It was two and a half thousand bucks, which was huge money for a 16-year-old. Sure. Um and I had a chat with my, my dad and, and we decided I'd buy some shares with that. Um both my parents, uh, you know, the, the most brilliant parents you could ever ask for, but neither of them are interested in money at all, and not overly financially literate, really smart, but but just not interested in money. Um, but my grandpa loved his shares. So my grandpa bought News Corp at 30 cents, I reckon, oh. and held them. Um, you know, I think he bought them when Rupert was still living in Adelaide and, and, and held them the whole way through. And mm. he used to love lying on the beach in Noosa in his retirement years. And his main job for the day involved checking the paper and checking the News Corp share price. Um, and so anyway, long story short, me and the old man went down and bought a share magazine. Um, to decide what share to buy. And looking back now, you realise just how you know, stupid a way that is to, to select um, sure. what stock to buy, but that's what we did. We were tossing up between Woolworths at 5 bucks and AWA, which was a they manufactured some electrical equipment, um, right. yep. radios and TVs, and we ended up going to AWA. It ended up doing well, which, you know, just goes to show you're better off being lucky than, than being smart. Sometimes we managed to sell that. And then eventually I rolled that into buying my, um, my first car. So that was a oh, very early introduction into investing as a, as a 16 year old. Do you
0: think that, um, had it not been for footy that you would have become, uh, an investor gone on to study, uh, finance or commerce or something like that?
1: Well, not initially. No. So I was good at English at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I suspect initially my, my path in terms of uni would have been somewhere in that, that realms of, of, you know, a field where English is, is mm. um, most utilised. So I don't know if it would have been drawn to finance initially. Um, and if I had have gone in, into a field around English, there's a good chance I wouldn't have had a a heap of money to invest either. So maybe I wouldn't have found my way there. But I'm glad I did because um, I I love investing. I love being able to learn about different things. Um, I love the scorecard of of whether or not you're right or wrong. But more importantly, you know, particularly in a macro investing framework, you do start to get a a clearer picture of how the world works. And, Mm. um, yeah, I I just love that part of it as well.
0: Mm. You mentioned the scorecard there. Obviously, a lot of our listeners... Um, will be familiar with your footy career one of the things that I'm interested to know is I guess how your I guess development took place insofar as going from footy and some of the, the skills and I guess tricks you may have learned there um, from a psychological perspective and then applied to investing and in learning because you mentioned off air that you're sounds like you read a lot you're an avid reader you like to read um, but I think people that followed your footy career will know that you're also a really good leader and um, you apply yourself very professionally to things. And I wonder, did any of that kind of um, attitude towards sports and that type of thing rub off on you later on when you started to think about business and investing?
1: I think the psychology around um, elite sport and investing is actually quite a, a really nice link. I, I don't think there's that many lessons in elite sport that are transferable to the real world mm. there's a little bit about group dynamics and, and high performance but that psychology piece is a big one um you know i, I think how you respond to mistakes is a, a big part of that so you know AFL football is a game of mistakes nobody's ever played the perfect game of football as soon as you step on there within a couple of minutes you've made a mistake and you find that better players are able to stay present in the game and bounce back and still do what they need to do in the next contest and the one after that. And often you see inexperienced players that are still battling with confidence. Once they make a mistake, you can see them go into review mode and they spend the rest of the game mm-hmm. reviewing that mistake and what's happened rather than being present and dealing with what they need to do next. So, um, you know, there's some really obvious crossover with investing, Um you know, even the best investors are always making mistakes and you might see their record in what they've gone up at the end of the year and assume that it's been near on perfect but if you scratch the surface there would have been a heap of times they sold too quick there were a heap of placements they knocked back that they should have taken etc cetera, etc cetera. but they don't spend the rest of the week or month hanging on to that and stewing over it they'll move on and remain clear and calm and analyze what they need to do next um mm. so i think i think that's that's an obvious one but there are you know, lots of obvious ones. I mean, I think, you know, in football, you need to know where your edge is. You know, I was a, I was a pretty big midfielder when I first started playing and, and I was really quick. And so I would line up against someone and if they were my size, I knew I was going to be quicker than them. If they were as quick as me, I was usually bigger than them and stronger than them. So I, I, I was able to... Um, work out really quickly on my opponent where my edge lay and then manipulate the the game to suit that edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and investing is the same. You know, retail investors will often bemoan that the cards are stacked against them. And in some places they are. You know, some of the capital raisings that retail investors uh, don't always get access to or don't get much access to is justifiably really disappointing for those retail investors. But there are a lot of other areas that retail investors have an edge over institutional investors and i think you know investors need to be clear what their edge is and and how they can can use the markets to to favor that edge Mm.
0: it's a very like um i guess being self-aware it's one of those things where you know i've known some um, afl footballers in my time and a lot of them what they had is things like perseverance but they also had that ability to step outside themselves and and critically assess what they were doing wrong or right and work on that and sharpen that edge, so to speak. Um, I I now see that in investing, right? Like we see, particularly with retail investors, which you bring up, I see it quite frequently that not enough um, investors know where their edge might lie. Yeah. Maybe they they think, you know, it's an analytical edge, but, you know, then there's a supercomputer that can do some rudimentary ratios quicker than you can and and trade faster. So um, I think that's a really important one. How about, one thing that's, that's always kind of interesting, Chris, is, the transition away from footy um, and I guess the decision-making that you had around that um, to, to go on and become a private investor, manage your own money. I, I feel like that's a thing that not many professional sports people would do. They probably wouldn't have the conviction in themselves or even the, the I guess the information and the accumulated information over time to go and, and back themselves and manage their own money. How did you find that transition away from professional sports to then Thinking, oh, you know, I'll take control of my money.
1: Well, it was a gradual progression. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I mentioned the, the experience as a sixteen-year-old uh, when I first bought shares. Then I got drafted, had access to some savings, and started buying shares from the age of eighteen mm-hmm. regularly. And I would describe that next decade as making all the sort of mistakes um, people generally make. I look at the shares I was buying initially now, and I would. You know, I was buying ANZ and BHP and I, I don't know how anyone outperforms the market buying those sorts of shares. Mm. Um, and then I went to, to higher risk shares and held on to some crappy things that had run way too long. And, and moral of the story is by the time I was 28, I met a guy in Perth who was chairman of a, a stockbroking firm. Um, you know, stockbrokers are a, a, a mixed bunch. There's, there's some good ones and there's some, some shoddy ones. And anyway, he, he's a great broker, um, super smart. And he really taught me how to invest in micro-cap stocks. Um, so it's really fortuitous to have that relationship, have someone who treated my money like his own, which is very rare in the broken community. Mm-hmm. But more so than that, actually taught me how to invest in micro-caps and, and, and taught me the nuance. You know, everyone knows the one-line sayings, but there's, you know, let your winners run. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense if you've got Amazon. But um, mm-hmm. when you're investing in micro-caps in Australia, not many investors have Amazon. Um, so then working out what that really means, how far you do let them run before you actually sell um, and, and all that sort of nuance. So that was fortuitous. Then I played football. Then I stopped playing football uh, quite abruptly and I took a job as an analyst in a venture capital fund, right. giant leap in Melbourne. Um, VC investing is really hard. Uh, it's not for me. I, I put a big premium on liquidity um, and I think VC investing, you know, particularly in Australian businesses with a, a pretty small market, uh, even if things do scale up, it is very expensive. Um, but that was a good experience. I got to meet some new people. Um, and you spoke about the confidence or, or conviction. I think just actually dealing with professional investors that were sophisticated and getting to meet lots of different people, I think, gave me the confidence that I, I could cut my teeth in this world and make a go of it. And, you know, after spending some time as an analyst and VC investments that personally I didn't see a a heap of value in, I was still analysing a lot of listed companies, that some of which I I saw a lot of value in. I I just thought it made sense to spend more time on the stuff that where I wanted to put my own money.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, after about 18 months post-footy, maybe it was two years, I took the plunge to to become a a full-time private investor. But it was a gradual, gradual progression. And and looking back, it seems so obvious now that that's what I should have done. Mm. Um, But it wasn't the path, it wasn't the most logical path. You know, post football, I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur because the people I admired most in the business world were entrepreneurs. Um, And I just wouldn't have been suited to it. You know, Mm. so there was some good learnings there. I, I did a personality test about, couple of years post-footy that Mm. was really uh, quite illustrating and, and, uh, you know, I had some characteristics, you know, very low in compassion, um, (laughs) very, very low in or very high in disagreeability um, (laughs) and and some of those traits, they, they link to competitiveness, which was useful for sport and is useful for investing, but disagreeability... Yeah, my wife will say that's challenging being married to someone who's in the bottom third percentile for disagreeableness um, or agreeableness. But when you're an investor and someone is trying to sell you an opportunity, the last thing you want to be is highly agreeable because you'll be buying all sorts of crap that you can you can never sell or profit from. So that there's some link, there's some traits in that personality test which which maybe make me a pain in the ass in in different areas. But in terms of investing, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm well suited to it. So I'm, I feel really lucky that I found my way here. But before I sunk a lot of capital into a business and, you know, was, was pop committed to becoming an entrepreneur and, and probably something uh, I wasn't as suited at.
0: Yeah, well, investing is entrepreneurial anyway, right? Because it's particularly if you're investing in smaller businesses, because you are taking the risk to invest with founders and CEOs and, and sometimes businesses that are not yet established. So you do take that risk and you can kind of scratch that itch, I guess. It's interesting that the two things you bring up uh, in the personality test are probably things that aren't necessarily endearing, but we'll, we'll take them for investing. And I totally agree with you about being agreeable or disagreeable. You know, One of the things that I try and emphasize is you know, we don't want a bunch of yes men or women in our team. We want people that have independent thought. You know, respectful independent thought is probably the most valuable thing you can have in any team. It's just, it's not suited to every, every team, I guess, you know, when you, when you're an investing team, some people take it personally when they shouldn't and it just becomes a bit messy, but absolutely in investing. And when you're doing a stock pitch or, um, you know, you've got a proposal, the thing you want is disagreement and respectful disagreement. Um, I'm interested because in this conversation, particularly because there's a lot you have to add, I find around like the macro thinking But normally when I do these types of conversations, I have some sort of slide deck or, you know, a phone manager has, um, you know, philosophy page on their website, which I can kind of clean an insight (laughs) into how things work. But with you, because you're a private investor, you know, there's there's not much to go on. So I thought a really good way to talk about it is just from a high level perspective, how you construct your portfolio. And then when we talk about the different, I guess, sleeves or elements to that, maybe you can explain, um, I guess, how that suits your philosophy. I know that's a pretty waffly question, but basically let's talk about your portfolio, how you construct it, and then maybe we can pick apart different, different pieces of that.
1: Yeah, so I think in terms of portfolio construction, I'm not sure if you've read any of Diego Perilla's stuff. Have you come across him? Not much, talk? no. So he's got the most, I think it's just the most eloquent uh, narrative around portfolio construction, which I like, um, and he, he equates it to being a soccer team, and you need to know which positions are being filled by which asset classes. So mm-hmm. he believes a lot of investors will have just a team full of strikers. And mm-hmm. so if you're a micro cap ASX investor, I mean, really, it, it sounds far fetched, but generally when you're looking to make a, an investment in a company with a sub 50 million market cap, you're really hoping that goes up 5X or 10X, which mm. we know they're not all going to, but when you write out the check, that's sort of a hope. So essentially, if you're, if you're investing in a company hoping for those sorts of returns over two or three years, uh, that's a striker, you know, that's a really attacking position in the portfolio. Then you've got some cash, which cash is, isn't a defender. Cash is your interchange player on the sidelines. It can be brought on Mm -hmm. to buy another striker or another defender, depending on uh, how you see the game going. And then your defenders in the portfolio are, are gold or bonds. Um, now, I don't invest in in bonds. Um, Why is that? Uh, I just feel like, well, I came too late to the party to really understand them. And um, to be honest, up until a couple of years ago, I, I sort of thought people invested in bonds for the yield. I didn't realise people invest in bonds for the capital appreciation until a, a couple of years ago. And it's a shame because I, I would have loved... Bond investing, because it is a really good expression of macro view, and and so often you hear people talk about the stock market not being the economy and and complaining about that. Well, the the bond market generally has been the economy. Um, But the bond market, you could argue, is starting to die as an asset class. Um, You know, we've got yield curve control in Australia and Japan. The Fed in America said they're not going to embark on yield curve control, but they want... Inflation consistently higher than 2%, which felt like that was the first part. There's no use talking about yield curve control when there's no inflation. First, they needed to articulate mm. they want higher inflation. Then should they get that higher inflation, that's when potentially the yield curve control conversation makes more sense for the Fed to have because mm. with the amount of debt in the system, they're not going to be able to pay high interest rates on that debt. Um, so anyway, I missed the bond market. Um, but I think currency is the next... You know, if we don't get a heap of volatility in the bond market going forward because there's no price discovery, I think we will get large uh, volatility in in the currency markets. I think that's where the the volatility will come out. So I've done been doing a little bit of currency trading, um, and I'll probably start to explore that a bit more um, down the track. But in terms of portfolio construction, I like the Diego Perilla explanation. I've got about forty percent of my location. Of, in, in gold and silver stocks. Um, I've got some cash there, ready to buy some other things. Um,
0: mm. I bought
1: a little bit of crypto, which I see as um, sort, of, sort of an insurance policy against, you know, the, the end of the world. Um, and, uh, and then I've got some, some shares in predominantly ASX listed, smaller cap stocks.
0: Well, why don't we take them one at a time then? We talked about um, the right expression of a trade and you brought in some um, thoughts there around monetary policy, yields, et cetera. And by the way, I don't invest in bonds personally either. Um, I just, I think it's a, I kind of think the odds are stacked against anyone that, considers it uh, maybe in some of the hybrids or mixed stuff um, like the corporate stuff you might find some opportunities but it's pretty hard going elsewhere but um, why don't we start my old man who was my soccer coach growing up um, said that you should always build a sports team from the defense forward so why don't we start at the back and um, let's talk about the you said stocks like gold stocks and silver stocks so if I'm not mistaken you're talking about like ASX listed companies like miners and that type of thing do you hold any physical gold?
1: Not physical, but I've got um, commodity futures in gold and silver as well.
0: Yeah, right. So, how do you go about thinking about the best expression of that trade being, um, I guess, in gold is kind of like the hedge against volatility, capital preservation piece. How do you think about that? Like, is there a particular criteria that you apply to that versus some of the other stuff?
1: Yeah, so I generally have a really high risk to tolerance. Mm. Sorry, high tolerance to risk. Mm-hmm. Um, And I don't have an investment committee. I've got to explain my decisions to, um, you know, we were talking about edge before, I think my ability to tolerate short-term volatility and not have people take money off me like a a fund manager would is is an edge that I have over institutional investors. So um, having said that, because I liked the the idea around gold so much, I didn't want to be stuck in just a couple of microcap, gold producers or developers or explorers and potentially miss missed the run because I was too concentrated in, in a a couple of positions. So really I feel like my gold exposure is almost like a personal ETF. I've got about 15 different gold and silver stocks I'm invested in. Um, I started off with larger, you know, I really started building that around, um, March and April. I had some gold exposure before that, but really went significantly into it around then. And I started with bigger companies and worked my way down, if you like. So I started with instalment warrants on some institutional Mm. grade ASX companies. Okay. Um, The criteria, I really wanted the deposits to be in good jurisdictions. Um, You know, I thought that if the gold price were to go to 3000 or $5,000, the temptation for a, a government in a third world country taking that uh, asset off the mining company becomes quite high. So tier one jurisdictions, um, mm-hmm. good management teams, um, you know, producers is is where I where I start where, mm. where I started, and I got about four or five of them, and then I gradually work my way down the risk curve to some uh, developers and, and some explorers. And in terms, if I had to just pick one. My bias is probably um, to gold developers. So particularly if, if you've got a really long-term view of gold, and I think the gold thematic, you know, I don't think it's a 12 to 18-month thing. I think it's sort of a 5 to 10-year thing, maybe even longer. So to be in a company that's, if, if you're really bullish long-term on the gold price to be invested in a company, that's quickly digging that gold out of the ground and selling it probably doesn't make as much sense as, as someone who's knocking it out of the ground. Um, so th- that's my favourite sort of gold mm. stock to invest in at in a minute. Uh, uh, developer, tier one jurisdiction, you know, they've got the gold in the ground. It's it's a bit like having the physical gold stored for you, but you don't have to pay the storage fees.
0: You now I was going to say that's, that's kind of, there's kind of two angles there, isn't there? There's like the I guess with the physical gold, we know that there are some, I guess, shortfalls with that insofar as holding costs and it actually you know it doesn't pay you a dividend, that type of thing, but a gold miner would. And so I don't hold any physical gold in my portfolio, Chris, and probably the closest I would go is owning a business that digs gold out of the ground. Um, but how do you think about then, just this is kind of an interesting aside, it's just about risk generally. You say you've got a high tolerance for risk. Do you perceive volatility to be the risk for you and your wealth or do you think that, risk is actually in the business itself and permanent capital loss. Like I'm interested to in just, just, just some general thoughts around that.
1: The risk for me is just permanent capital loss. The volatility is uncomfortable like it is for anyone. But for me, volatility is great for me. Mm. Um, Cause I don't have a, I don't have a report I've got to type out at the end of the month and send it to investors and wonder if they're going to take their money from me and, and give it to someone else. So volatility is, really challenging for fund managers to deal with but for a private investor um it's mm. a great opportunity and you know provided you've done the work and you know what you've bought um you should be able to deal with that that level of discomfort and it's really that that, that discomfort is what you get paid for as a private investor being able to put up with it mm, for sure
0: how about then um i guess when it comes to having the gold exposure let's say as a private investor, and this is just me playing devil's advocate here with the gold position is what would you feel comfortable having a hundred percent of your money in equities? Um, And I know like the like let's say, say like gold stocks is equities, but it's a gold exposure. Like let's say industrial companies or something like that, like growth focused um, equities and and companies, would you be comfortable with that exposure?
1: If, if I had a hundred percent exposure in, just stocks, full stop. Yeah, yeah, just stocks, full stop. Yes, yep, yep, I've done that plenty of times before. I've been um, largely fully invested before in in stocks. Yeah. So yeah. you, so my
0: understanding then, with, with when you say gold exposure, a lot of people use gold exposure, and you would you know this as well as I do. A lot of people use physical gold or other types of gold linked assets as purely as a hedge against uncertainty and to minimise volatility in a portfolio. But you see it more as like a wealth creation uh, piece alongside the equity or the other uh, industrials, if you like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know too that if the market corrects sharply, those gold equities are going to be treated like equities in the short term. And maybe the gold price will too, as, as fund managers look to liquidate whatever they can to cover margin calls and whatever else. And that's what we saw in March. I mean, every everyone in March knew that the response from the Fed was going to be get the printing presses going. Mm. And everyone knows that there's an incredibly strong correlation between the size of the Fed's balance sheet and the gold price. Um, But gold price still corrected sharply in that March sell-off and gold equities got treated like equities. Um, So, yeah, look, that's something that can happen in the short term. I mean, one of the reasons I love gold so much is for the optionality. So I think gold's going to do well in a deflationary environment. Uh, and I think gold's going to do well in a, a hyperinflation environment, or even if it's not the Weimar Republic, a really high inflation mm. environment. Where gold's going to really struggle is if we get, you know, 2 to 3% inflation and, and high consistent economic growth. Um, you know, if, if that occurs, then, um, mm. you know, gold's probably going to struggle. But... In terms of that left tail risk of a depression and depreciating asset prices, I think gold does well In the right tail risk of a really high inflationary environment, gold does even better. So that optionality, which you don't get with silver, silver's only going to do well with that right tail sort of risk, um, but the optionality that gold provides in this current environment when you don't need to have an economics degree to, to work out there's <laughs> a few challenges going on and that, that really nice, positive, consistent growth Um, It's something I can't see happening
0: Mm. How about then, let's switch gears Let's talk about these strikers It seems like everyone loves to talk about strikers They always get the highest price in the sporting world Um, Strikers, I love small cap investing I love micro caps, all that type of stuff as well How do you think about that sleeve of your portfolio And what are some of the factors that go into Allowing a potential opportunity into the portfolio
1: Yeah, so like you touched on earlier, I I like macroeconomic um, data or, you know, the vast bulk of stuff I read outside of company-specific stuff is is macroeconomic uh, information and some of the top-down thematics that um, I like. We've talked about currency debasement and and gold already. Um, Ageing demographics in the Mm. Western world is a really strong thematic that's incredibly easy to predict. Uh, automation and robotics, um, clean air in China and and clean air in the world, but specifically out of China, um, and then this move to, you know, I think financials, traditional financials have a lot of headwinds, and things that are being virtualized or companies responsible responsible for digitizing things or virtualizing them have a lot of tailwinds. So. so that doesn't necessarily mean that I think things that fall into that or those categories are good investments. It's still very much price dependent. And if ANZ went to 11 bucks tomorrow, even though it's a financial asset, you know, if it didn't look like it was going to go bankrupt, it, it may be a great trade. But in terms of longer term and, and things that I'm comfortable and excited to hold for a long time, something that plays into those top-down thematics are, are usually the, the buckets that I'm, I'm looking to play in.
0: Um, I find like with maybe without, you don't have to be too specific here, but I guess a really good way to illustrate um, a process is to just use an example. So is there anything particular uh, recently that has caught your attention and I'm, I, what I'm particularly interested in is kind of the thought process and information gathering that went in behind that to progress that idea through your process?
1: Yeah, so i I'll trying to talk stock specific. I think... The Australian telco space will see a lot of consolidation. You've seen TPG um, bought up lots of other businesses and now merged with Vodafone. Mm. I think that'll happen again. Um, you're competing against the NBN, which has it, had its challenges. Um, it's a case of telco and managed services businesses playing to the thematic of virtualizing the world. Um, you know, Zoom is now virtualizing. Aeroplane travel, yep. uh, it, it's virtualizing face-to-face meetings, virtualizing office space, um, and for all these things to happen, you know, companies have to be connected to the internet, they've got to be pre- protected with cyber security uh, offerings, um, they've mm-hmm. got to, be to have, have, have cloud infrastructure, either with themselves or public cloud. So, so all these things that now modern businesses need, and... Um, so I think that's an interesting top-down thematic. So, you know, to be able to find a, a high-functioning management team that plays into that space that could be part of a roll-up or could be acquired eventually um, mm-hmm. is an interesting play. Um, you know, that, that's a that's a for instance, if you like. And those yeah. examples of, uh, you know, good examples of whether it's a a nickel-cobalt company that's going to play in the, the, the clean air thematic or, you know, uranium, I, I, I quite like. I don't know if it's a, a super long-term hole, but I think you get a nice trade-out of uranium with the supply-demand imbalances that, that appear to be occurring. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of a, a bit of an overview, if you like.
0: Yeah, I guess so what I'm reading into this is that the, the big, as a top-down investor, which, by the way, we don't get many of on the show, um, at least not in private, in the private investor landscape, it's, um, it's more bottom up approaches who I speak to. Um, so what I'm getting is that a lot of this top down um, reading and research that you do is information gathering is more so around assessing the opportunity set. Um, and then you can use that to progress kind of through to the next um, level of your, your filter, if you like it, and, and assess each position case by case. Um, how do you think then about, let's go to another part of your portfolio, which is this currency um, angle and, and the trade you're, you're thinking about there. What goes into your thinking then? Is it, is it, I know you, you talk a lot about um, modern monetary theory, um, about um, geopolitics, interest rates, central bank action, those types of things. Um, maybe we can talk about currencies and, and how, what goes into analysing uh, that position in your portfolio.
1: Yeah, so I try and keep things pretty simple because I'm not that clever. Um, So I view gold as a currency, not as a commodity, for starters. (laughs) Gold has an 84% correlation with the direction of the Fed's balance sheet, which we've spoken about. It's also got a really strong inverse correlation to real interest rates. So um, when real interest rates are low or negative, that's really good for gold. Mm -hmm. And, And we also know that, you know the, the debts that have been incurred around the world. They can really only be, be eradicated by default. You know, so the U.S. government could default on their debts, or they can inflate away their debts. And the last time, and Luke Groman speaks a lot about this, the last time the fiscal situation was so dire in the states, where they were in so much debt, was 1946. And for the next 35 years, uh, real interest rates were negative for most of that period, the vast majority of the next 35 years. So. Um, and I also think people can be a little bit lazy. So we, we didn't get inflation post the GFC. Um, everyone knows that. Um, we didn't get inflation in CPI, you know, so, so everyone's assuming that won't happen again. But we did get inflation in, in asset prices. Um, we did get, you know, arguably because so many central banks around the world are printing currency to currency isn't the best way to analyse which currencies are going up and which currencies are going down. But when gold that increased in production at one and a half percent a year since 1970 versus US dollar that's gone when money supply's increased by about 10% over the same period, that's a pretty good long-term bet for mine. I don't think money supply is going to reduce rapidly in the next few years. If anything, I think it's going to ramp up even more, you know, the, the, the US has $8.5 trillion worth of treasuries that mature by the end of 2021. Um, I'm sure some other countries are going to refinance some of that or or buy the bonds to refinance some of that. But a lot of that's going to be left to the Fed. So those sorts of things, I think, are really bullish for gold uh, in a long-term sense. Um, And I, I think, you know, the US dollar sort of has to devalue against the gold price because we see how much damage it does to the world economy if it's too strong and I think the US throughout this COVID experience has seen how vulnerable they are if manufacturing isn't brought back onshore you know have 90% of your antibiotics made in China leaves them really vulnerable at a time when I mean globalization isn't ending but I think it's going to be reduced and we are going to see more localization. So um, mm. that globalisation thematic has been great for really rich people in first world countries and it's been great for people in third world countries. But for working class people and poor people in first world countries, it's it's just been a disaster. And, mm. um, and I think you can see by the civil unrest and the difference between capital and labour being as big as it's ever been in the history of the world, um, if that doesn't ride itself, we're going to have, you know, you're not going to be buying gold. You're going to be buying pitchforks. So, um, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. that's sort of where the world's at. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I know you do a lot of reading around this and
0: one of the things that gets talked about a lot is this idea of MMT. Yeah. And, um, this kind of, uh, I think it's like an old way, um, it's cause it's not necessarily recent, Like the guys that kind of fostered this started thinking about it in the early 2000s, late nineties and on an internet discussion forum. And um, it's now catching uh, gaining traction because of the situation, particularly the U S is in with such a high uh, level of debt. So I thought maybe because you are definitely the expert on this rather than me. i so hoping maybe you can explain the concept of MMT for people that maybe haven't heard of it before. And maybe how that plays into your thinking in that, I guess, that thesis that you just gave to us.
1: Well, my, I guess, understanding of m and which is by no means expert, is that basically, it's basically what people think, what a lot of people think is already happening for that mm. to actually happen. So a lot of people just think, you know, the US government sell bonds, um, the Fed buys those bonds and gives the money to the US government, and it's sort of happening in an indirect way, but I think MMT is a way of formalising that process whereby saying, you know, QE at the minute is meant to be temporary. We had quantitative tightening in 2018, I believe it was. Um, So, and the Fed is an independent body, theoretically. It's not actually joined with the US Treasury. So MMT is basically saying deficit, deficits don't matter. We'll um, print money and buy bonds uh, direct from the U.S. Treasury. They'll then go and spend the money. And if inflation and, and that only becomes an issue when inflation comes and inflation's higher than we want it to be but the, the tweak point in MMT is to not then adjust interest rates to deal with that inflation, it's to judge taxation. So that's um, mm. that's basically my understanding of MMT. Basically print money, commit to fiscal stimulus. You know, if you're talking about the Democrats, you'll potentially even have something like a universal basic income. Um, you can print as, MMT is believed you can print as much money as you want and it doesn't really matter unless you get serious inflation and then the way to reduce inflation is through taxation. So mm. what's really happening now in QE is it's, the money gets stuck in QE, if you like. And, you know, I, we talked about, we touched on inflation before and, you know, really smart people like Lacey Hunt, who's just a brilliant economist, believes that if the Fed goes direct and they're all of a sudden allowed to spend and not just loan money, then that will be hyper, hyperinflationary, he believes. Right now, the Federal Reserve Act, they're only allowed to loan money, Right. And so MMT is almost changing those rules, um, yeah, which, which would effectively lead to just a, a huge increase in, in fiscal spending. And I think what we didn't get last time post-GFC is we didn't get that increase in fiscal spending. If you recall, we had the, the Tea Party, Republican Tea Party, tried to squash a lot of the fiscal initiatives that Obama's government tried to implement So we got a bit of fiscal spending early on. Then we we almost got fiscal austerity in the US and and particularly in Europe too. Um, I think that's what will be different this time is that Mm. we will have this loose monetary environment and we will have a a really high fiscal spending environment. And Jerome Powell's already said that he can't create inflation by himself. He needs fiscal assistance and that um, government should be spending more in a fiscal sense. You've seen France just commit to an increase in fiscal spending and saying they're not going to worry about the restrictions that EU put in place. Um, you know, we've had some fiscal stimulus in Australia in terms of government handouts since, since the virus hit. So I think everywhere you're looking around the world, fiscal stimulus is coming or, or seems to be coming. And I think that's what will be different to the way this crisis has been handled versus the um, GFC crisis, which ended up being a, a deflationary or largely deflationary outcome.
0: Mm. I've, so I had to brush up on this when we spoke last week. Um, I had to go away and, and read a fair bit and, and watch a few interviews on this, Chris. And some of the things that I took away and you mentioned your Paul, there is some of the, I guess the proponents for MMT would question whether monetary policy or interest rates works at all. And um, would say that during the GFC, or in the lead-up to the GFC, as interest rates rates went higher, that benefited the wealthy people, but the people who don't have money in the bank, for example, actually do not benefit from that and end up paying more on their debts. And so you get that rising, I guess, inequality in a way. Um, so it almost has the opposite effect. Um, they don't know which which one's the gas pedal, which one's the brake pedal with monetary policy. Like, Do we know for sure what impact it has? And then the other one was that you could use this kind of universal income to balance employment and inflation that way. And I guess if I could tuck one third one on here is that you only get inflation when you have, um, I guess, repurchase of the same asset. So um, a repurchase of the same asset. So for example, if you buy something, if, if the government buys something today, it sells it, then buys it back at a higher rate. If you're still printing more money on top of that, then you're going to get more inflation in the system. Um, those are just my general, I guess, high-level observations when it comes to that. Um, if you're, if you're sitting back thinking, you know, um, I've got this gold position, would this MMT effectively, are you concerned that that would, if we bring this in, effectively neutralise that position for you and end between the right and the left tail and put it somewhere in the middle where it's not really useful for your portfolio?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think that's a weird possibility. So you've got, you've got huge deflationary forces at play you've got aging demographics in the western world you've got Mm. technology which has been a huge force for deflation globalization has been a huge force for deflation but i I don't think that's going to be the case going forward and that localization process may be net inflationary Mm. but then you've got um a lot of inflationary forces um that we've spoken about as well, you know, fiscal stimulus being the big one currency debasement um, gives you the potential for, for high inflation. Um, so yeah, like is there a possibility that those two things could almost cancel each other out uh, potentially, but I mean, one of the things the way I look at it is, you know, if we get deflation central banks are just going to print that much money. Um, and, mm-hmm and i so I agree that just straight q e where interest rates go to zero and the money sits in the bank account is deflationary, but it 's still good for the gold price you 're still going to have money supply going up through the roof the size of the fed 's balance sheet increasing significantly so I think that's still going to be good for um for the gold price um, The thing about the the right tail risk is that At the start it will feel really good at the start we'll get some inflation and i think there will be this feeling that maybe we've just maybe we've just discovered the secret source we can just print as much money and spend as much fiscally and we can have full employment and i think because when that starts it will feel good the authorities will do too much of it and or if full employment is good, well, why can't everyone get a 10% pay rise? Wouldn't that be better? And, and so it goes on until you do get really high rates of inflation. I think if you look at, um, you know, people's ability to have self-control or deal with any sort of mm. discomfort is just so low uh, throughout the world at the minute. I, I think that that sugar rush when things, if they were to balance each other out, Evenly, I think the inflation will feel good at the start and that, that's what will lead to the problem. So it's possible, but it's, it's not what I think is the most likely outcome.
0: Mm, it's interesting.
1: Um, you know, I, I should circle back to this and say MMT, you know, with the, the debt to GDP
0: ratio, which is what so many people focus on. Um, it kind of throws that aside and says, well, you know, we'll always be able to service the interest costs. Interest costs necessarily are productive for our society, but we'll always be able to service them because we can print money and make that happen. And this typically, when we think about MMT, it, it only applies to developed countries that can that have their locally denominated debt um, and, and, and have their own currency um, under their control. So there are a few things there that people should be aware of. Um, one of the things that I that I wanted to talk to you about is I guess your your time horizon when it comes to trades. So you mentioned um, earlier that. Um, potentially, you know, short-term, you, you have an ability to change your opinion on something very short-term because you are a private investor after all. But when you look out um, to say things like, like gold positions or, or even company-specific positions in your own portfolio, have you, have you thought that maybe um, that should be measured in years, months? I'm just trying to get a general sense on on how long you look to invest and how long you actually invest.
1: So it's so different for each company. Um and each specific investment. So, um, you know, I might take a a placement in a company and and hope to be flipping it out within a week, just because Mm -hmm. it's a small position, it's at a good discount. Um, and it's well bid for, and then there'll be other companies that I've done a lot of work on. I've met management. I'm comfortable with their long-term plans and, you know, I would like to hold them for forever, you know, or or five years or, or 10 years. But, um, yeah, it's so specific to each company and each setup. But generally, the more money you're putting in, the longer you want to hold it because it's going to be harder to get out of it. So um, I don't sort of invest in a company all in the first time I invest in it. It'll usually a process of, you know, you might get to know management, like the business, do some work on it, invest a sum of money, Six months later, the management have hit all the milestones they've been trying to hit. You might invest some more money or they might do a capital raising to buy another business and so it goes on. Um, The general, I guess, theme from my investing is if I'm going to have a winner, I want it to be a really big winner Um, and sometimes that'll mean that you're investing in a company and it might not do much for a few years but you might in that time, you might get more and more comfortable with management. The long-term play appears to be playing out how you expected it to. And then, you know, you might decide that there's a time 18 months down the track or three years to, to double up on that investment or, you know, to put, to put the chips all in, so to speak. Um, so it's not sort of fixed, but, but I'm generally trying to cut losers quickly as everyone should be. Um, Mm. But I'm also much more likely to average up than average down. And, and if I'm going to have a big winner, uh, obviously, I, I want it to be material. That, that's sort of mm. how I, I view things.
0: Do you, do you write down your thesis or do you have, like, notes that you take on each company and you put it somewhere um, to kind of keep yourself accountable um, to your, your past self? And, you know, I find it so important to write something down. I've, I've, you mentioned English before as something that you're really good at. I feel like since I've been writing down my reasons for buying something, which has been quite a few years now, the leaps in my investing um, and, and in a positive way have been incredible versus what I was doing in the past. There was almost no track record. You don't even need like a, a number or percentage, but just a track record against yourself in a journal or, or something like that. Do you, do, do you write down your positions pre, pre-investment?
1: I'm meticulous in keeping records of what I'm invested in and so I'm really clear on what the performance is. I generally, I don't write down um, the investment thesis, but I I will know and I'll map out before I invest in, particularly if it's a reasonable size position, Mm. milestones that I can potentially see happening in the next two years that could lead to a re-rate if they get achieved. Um, Mm. And then I'm really, really disciplined, particularly now if I'm just if I can't see why that could get re-rated higher in the next 12 months, well, I'm just a seller. Um, there's always a new opportunity and if I miss out on that one and it goes on to double or, or even more, we'll, we'll sort of so be it because um, mm. there is always another opportunity and that opportunity cost. Um, mm. And even when you you go back or when I go back and analyse the companies I've sold, the vast majority of them, I'm, I'm happy that I've sold when I have. So mm. I, I think being... I think property investing is all about the buying and the good property investors buy really well. I think share investing is all about the selling. It's really hard to sell well as a, as a share investor, but I think that's where the, the main skill lies.
0: Mm. Yeah, I know I can uh, put my hand up. I'm probably the worst person to take advice from when it comes to selling. It's, it's almost, you know, I almost never uh, get any of it right. So I don't get the timing right. And I often sell companies before, um, before you know i've actually done what i thought they would do in the first place um but then again i've only sold three positions in the last two or three years so i guess i can live my live at my uh control myself and, and my weaknesses there um as we kind of come to the back of it mate um i know you've got a podcast that's just killing it um you do videos it's it's great um you've got kind of these two channels which i think our audience would be really interested in listening to um, did you just want to give a shout out to them
1: yeah, thanks for that. I've got uh Christian Invest is the is the overall channel. I've got the Masters of the Market show, which is a this is your lifestyle show of of an investor or or fund manager where they walk through their their life lessons and the things they've picked up along their journey in the investing world. And then I've got a show called Talk Your Book, um, hmm. which is a different investor's highest conviction investment idea. They come on and talk through a usually a stock specific idea, why they like it and, and what the potential catalyst could be to, to see it re-rate.
0: Mm, I think it's, uh, I think the whole thing you've put together mate, is, is really good. And um, I've listened to a few, I, I, for example, Michael Goldberg was on the show recently. He, he made the connection for us. And um, I, I watched a couple of your interviews with him where he's been on the talkie book segment. And it was, it was really good. Um, I, I think I listened to all of them that Michael was on mm. and, and that's how I got onto him. So, um, One thing that I always ask my my guests before um, I let them leave is uh, just some of the advice that you'd have for a a younger you. Um, If you could go back and tell yourself, maybe even before you were 16, maybe when you bought that first share perhaps, one thing about investing, um, what would it be?
1: Uh, Don't assume somebody is smarter than you because there is a lot of acronyms. (laughs) I like it, mate. Chris, thanks
0: for taking the time out to join me on the show.
1: Beautiful. Thanks, Don. Really appreciate it.